0: To listen to a sermon from Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church. As a church, we want to see whole communities captivated by Jesus Christ and living out his freedom. Revelation chapter 18. After this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven. He had great authority and the earth was illuminated by his splendor. With a mighty voice he shouted, Fallen! Fallen is Babylon the great! She has become a home for demons, and a haunt for every evil spirit, a haunt for every unclean and detestable bird. For all the nations have drunk the maddening wine of her adulteries, the kings of the earth committed adultery with her, and the merchants of the earth grew rich from her excessive luxuries. Then I heard another voice from heaven say, Come out of her, my people, so that you will not share in her sins, so that you will not receive any of her plagues. For her sins are piled up to heaven, and God has remembered her crimes. Give back to her as she has given. Pay her back double for what she has done. Mix her a double portion from her own cup. Give her as much torture and grief as the glory and luxury she gave herself. In her heart she boasts, I sit as queen, I am not a widow, and I will never mourn. Therefore in one day her plagues will overtake her, death, mourning, and famine. She will be consumed by fire, for mighty is the Lord God who judges her. When the kings of the earth who committed adultery with her and shared her luxury see the smoke of her burning, they will weep and mourn over her. Terrified at her torment, they will stand far off and cry, Woe! woe, O great city! O Babylon, city of power! In one hour your doom has come. The merchants of the earth will weep and mourn over her, because no one buys their cargoes any more. Cargoes of gold, silver, precious stones and pearls, fine linen, purple silk, and scarlet cloth. Every sort of citron wood. And articles of every kind made of ivory, costly wood, bronze, iron, and marble, cargoes of cinnamon and spice, of incense, myrrh, and frankincense, of wine and olive oil, of fine flour and wheat, cattle and sheep, horses and carriages, and bodies and souls of men. They will say, The fruit you longed for is gone from you, all your riches and splendor had vanished, never to be recovered. The merchants who sold these things and gained their wealth from her will stand far off, terrified at her torment. They will weep and mourn and cry out, Woe, woe, O great city, dressed in fine linen, purple and scarlet, and glittering with gold, precious stones and pearls. In one hour such great wealth has been brought to ruin. Every sea captain and all who travel by ship The sailors and all who earn their living from the sea will stand far off. When they see the smoke of her burning, they will exclaim, Was there ever a city like this great city? They will throw dust on their heads and with weeping and mourning cry out, Woe, woe, O great city, where all who had ships on the sea became rich through her wealth. In one hour she has been brought to ruin. Rejoice over her, O heaven. Rejoice, saints and apostles and prophets. God has judged her for the way she treated you. Then a mighty angel picked up a boulder the size of a large millstone and threw it into the sea and said, With such violence the great city of Babylon will be thrown down, never to be found again. The music of harpists and musicians, flute players and trumpeters will never be heard in you again. No workman of any trade will ever be found in you again. The sound of a millstone will never be heard in you again. The light of a lamp will never shine in you again. The voice of bridegroom and bride will never be heard in you again. Your merchants were the world's great men. By your magic spell all the nations were led astray. In her was found the blood of prophets and of the saints and of all who have been killed on the earth."
1: The twenty-four elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God, who was seated on the throne, and they cried, Amen, Alleluia. Then a voice came from the throne, saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, both small and great. Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters, and like loud peals of thunder, shouting, Hallelujah, for our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory, for the wedding of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given to her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of the saints. Then the angel said to me, Write, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper for the Lamb. And he added, these are the true words of God. At this I fell at his feet to worship him, but he said to me, do not do, do it. I am a fellow servant with you and with your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Jesus, Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy.
2: Uh, if you are new with us this evening, you've walked into a s- the second week of a series uh, entitled Reimagining Public Faith. What we're doing for a few weeks together is taking a bit of a journey, exploring What would it look like to engage positively, publicly in our society in a way that isn't driven by fear, that is actually embodied in every part of our existence and of our lives? Last week, we, we talked about the reality that the gospel of Jesus Christ is political. It's about the reality of his coming and how his monarchy, his kingdom, will take over all the kingdoms of the world. It's a political reality, a fact, to come. And we decided that the, the, the job of the church before he comes is to be a prophetic voice embodied in society, telling the world politically of what is to come. Over the next two weeks, I want to unpack that because there's, kind of there's two edges to that sort of the prophetic voice in culture that the church has. Uh, On the one hand, uh, we testify to the fall of the earthly city, and on the other hand, we talk about the coming of the heavenly city, hence our backdrop. Today, I want to have a think about how we witness to the fact that the earthly city we belong to will soon fall. And that's a complicated thing, because it's difficult to work out how do you actually respond to the difficult things in our world in a way that actually makes sense and doesn't do damage I actually wanted to point to someone a bit different this evening. Does anyone know who this is by sight? I think Caitlin does, and that's it. That's all I've got all day. This is Ursula Le Guin. Uh, she died last year. She wrote these two books, if you've read one of them. Uh, she is kind of genre-defining for science fiction, and genre-defining in a different way for fantasy. Uh, although, if you said to her that she's a fantasy or science fiction writer, she would probably yell at you because she considered herself an author who shook people's imaginations about the world. The Left Hand of Darkness is about taking gender out of society and seeing what's left. The Wizard of Earthsea is about taking Western fantasy and showing what Eastern imagination would say about it. But uh, a fanboy of Ursula Le Guin ended up in an interview with her from the New York Times. Uh, and the interview was going really well until he, she started questioning him about his writing. Things didn't go so well for him in that conversation. Uh, and as he kind of mumbled some things about his book hits. Uh, Ursula Le Guin gave him some sage advice. She said, we don't know what we're looking for when we pick up a book, no matter how clear-cut the genre. We think we do, but we don't. Don't ever give people the thing they expect just because they expect it. Our job is to surprise them to shake them, to turn their expectations on their head. And do you know why? Because that's when the MRI of their brain lights up and they begin to see. It's a beautiful statement of how a pen or a keyboard and a book can be used to shake someone's imagination about the world. And I look at this sentence uh, from a woman who didn't call herself a Christian and I see the, the church's vocation. Our job is to surprise them, to shake them, to turn their expectations on their heads. Our prophetic voice in culture is to surprise people, expose assumptions they have about the world and the way it is, and to show up the cracks in society that demonstrate why this world will not last. But there is a city coming that will I think Revelation 18 really helps us unpack this because one of the problems we have is we don't know how to relate to the problems of society because we don't actually understand spiritually what a society is so i want to do something this evening and take you through two pieces of things you need to understand about society and then one thing about how you relate to society from Revelation 18 two things about society one way how to relate to society Have a look with me, 18, uh, verse 1 and following. The first thing is this, about societies. Societies like Sydney are held together by what they love. Societies are held together by what they love. It isn't the political substructure. It's not the particular geography of a place. It is spiritually what a people come together to love that defines them. And you see this in Revelation 18 about Rome. As you heard this read, I wonder if you ask the question of why is God angry at Rome? Reading Revelation when I was a bit younger, my assumption was that God is angry at Rome because Rome killed Christians. And that's true. But there's another reason why God judges Rome. We see in verse two a, a voice shout an angel, fallen, fallen is Babylon the Great. Babylon just a name to cover Rome, because if you're going to write a book about how Rome's going to end, maybe don't write Rome, because then they might burn your book. With a loud voice, fallen, fallen is Babylon the Great. She has become a home for demons, a haunt for every evil spirit, a haunt for every unclean and detestable bird. Why? For all the nations have drunk the maddening wine of her adulteries. The kings of the earth committed adultery with her, and the merchants of the earth grew rich from her excessive luxuries. Why does God judge Rome? It's because of a political and social reality that Rome is pressing on all of the known world. It's described like getting the whole world drunk on the same wine. In some way, Rome is spreading a Kool-Aid that everyone is drinking. And you see, there's a political aspect to this. The kings of the earth commit adultery, and then there are the merchants who go rich from the luxuries of Rome. And the reality is, is that there were nations who loved Rome, and their leaders would choose to worship the leaders of Rome so that their merchants could make lots of money through commerce. And basically, Rome was a project that moved through the ancient world, convincing kings to worship the power of Rome to win the riches of Rome. And everyone was falling in love with this idea. And you can see why. We have some stuff from uh, you know, uh, Emperor Augustus, uh, where he says very clearly about his vision of the world, land and sea have peace, the cities flourish under the good legal system, in harmony and with an abundance of food. There is an abundance of all good things. People are filled with happy hopes for the future and with delight at the present. Rome had this vision of political stability and luxury for everyone. And one by one, when they were conquered, cities would fall in love with this vision. You see, what I said is that societies are held together by what people love. And Rome was holding their empire together with a love of affluence and luxury. And it was for that reason that God judged it. It's not just Rome that functions like this. According to Augustine, all societies function like this. A people is an assemblage of reasonable beings bound together by a common agreement as to the objects of their love. In order to discover the character of any people, we have only to observe what they love. And the, the love of Romans for luxury is very well attested in the ancient world. There are some fantastic stories out there if you go looking for them. My, my favorite is that sometimes when you went to a really, really fancy dinner party in the middle of Rome, uh, when you sat down at the table, you'd have two things in front of you. You'd have a really nice, lovely glass of wine, And next to it, a pearl. And the pearl could be worth up to $2,000 in our speech. What people would do is they'd grab the pearl and they'd put it in the drink until it dissolved. And then they drank it for the sheer thrill of consuming something so expensive. Uh, one of the fads that went through Rome uh, was that people loved silver plates and everyone started buying silver plates to the point where it got boring to have silver plates and everyone decided we should upgrade. How about everyone gets gold plates? This got so ludicrous and so many people tried to do it that they had to pass a law forbidding people to buy golden cutlery and plates. Rome was next level in luxury and affluence. And God's problem with Rome was that it was getting all the world to fall in line with this materialistic, luxurious, affluent love. Rome was making the world worship material things rather than the living God. So on the one hand, you know that societies are held together by what they love. But the second thing you learn from Revelation 18 is that when a society loves something, That love animates everything in that society. And you see this in a really interesting way in 18. Uh, There's this kind of roll call through the different mourning parts of society after Rome falls. So verse 9, you get the kings. In verse 11, you get the merchants. And then in verse 17, you get the sea captains and even the deckhands on the boats. And, And one by one, they kind of mourn what they've lost. The kings at the top, they lament how quickly Rome fell. They thought Rome was impenetrable, and they depended upon it for security. And they're mourning the fact that that security is gone, that that ability to flourish is gone. The merchants mourn. What do they say? Because no one buys our cargoes anymore. Gold, silver, stones, pearls, cinnamon, Incense, myrrh, frankincense, they are mourning because their industry is destroyed and then the deckhands and the sea captains Realize that they can't earn their living from the sea anymore because no one will pay them to move the stuff from place to place So you have the ruling elite you have the white-collar CEOs And you have the blue-collar workers down to the deckhands all animated by what? a love of affluence And luxury. Every level of society driven by the same love. That's how societies spiritually work. They fall in love with something. And then they make every aspect of society get in line to get that love. That's spiritually how societies work. But you might be thinking, well, this seems a little harsh if Rome was kind of making everyone rich. That's kind of okay. Maybe they were just really good at business. Why is God so angry? You get a little bit of a hint of it, I think, in verse 13. Do you see that list? Ivory, wood, bronze, iron, marble. Apparently cinnamon was very hard to get those days, so that makes the list. Myrrh and frankincense. And what do you get at the end? Souls. When all of society flows after money, goods, material things, do you know what lessens the value of everyday human life? Humans are traded like cinnamon, like wood, like ivory around the ancient world. And this is just one symptom of the bigger problem with what happened in these societies. Because when a rich king wanted Rome's favor, what they would do is they'd set up their merchants to take their best projects like ivory and wheat and cinnamon and they'd send it over to Rome because Rome wanted them and to win them protection. But what would happen is that those goods would go out at the expense of the people in the nation and in the city. And so the merchants and the kings would get rich and powerful, but the poor would miss out on the stuff their land had that they had to make use of. In other cases, Rome just rocked into cities and took what they wanted and subjugated the people mercilessly. What happened as this affluence spread around the Roman Empire and as they conquered is that people were crushed. Not only was God displaced, people were displaced. And so God says, I am going to throw down Rome Babylon like a millstone, I am ending its way of life because every part of it as a society has become about this thing that has displaced me and displaced each other. The hard thing is, is when you read this passage, it it really doesn't taste that different to sit there. Our love of luxury. I've been reading recently uh, Hugh Mackay's book, Australia Reimagined. He has some choice words about Australians and the problems we have, some really interesting stuff, some really positive stuff, but some pretty brutal stuff. Here's his one-sentence summary of Australians. This is the problematic bit, obviously. Individualistic, trusting no one, focused on self-success and comfort individualistic, trusting no one, focused on self-success and comfort. Obsessed with self, obsessed with comfort. One of the big symptoms he shows of how this works is in gambling. And he he says how for for, uh, just the psychology bill for gambling in Australia, just dealing with the psychological impact, it takes 4.7 billion dollars. You know, we are a society that chases luxury and comfort, but at the expense of each other as well. We are not far from what Rome is like. We have a love. We order all of society after it, and people miss out as a response, as a result. I think it's at this point that we start to understand with clarity our prophetic task a bit more clearly. If society falls in love with something and every part of society aligns to get that love, what's our task? Our task, and this is my third thing that I want to get to, is to live out a different love. You know what Hugh Mackay says uh, is the antidote to Australia's problem? Find a faith and love your neighbor, literally. Find a faith and love your neighbor. Get a better love and then start to love the person next to you. The way this is expressed in Revelation is really early on in verse 4, where it's, uh, the call to God's people from heaven is, come out of her, my people, so that you will not share in her sins. You will not receive any of her. Like, come out from her. Don't be animated by the same vision of love as your society. Come out and live out a different love and a love for neighbor. Let me unpack a bit what this looks like. Let me tell you three things about what coming out from her looks like. Because it's not as simple as geography, isn't it? You can't just, like, go, go off grid, uh, get out of the city, and, and all of a sudden you fulfill what's happening here. The Christians had to stay in Rome and yet come out from her as the call in verse. What does this mean? Three things. Quick, quickly. First is this. As long as you work in Sydney, Sydney will be working on you. As long as you are working in Sydney, Sydney will be working on you. You don't just go to the CBD every day. To work the CBD works on you you don't just go to shop in the city every few weeks the city purchases works on you if society falls in love with something then pushes everything into line with it then that thing is happening to you daily in verse 23 the way it's described is the magic spell that Rome pushes over the nation this captivating pull to love what Rome loves, to love what Sydney loves. If I'm honest with you for a second, something I've seen a lot recently in Christians my age, I'm 32, I know I don't look like that, but you know, whatever, uh, is that, you know, a lot of them became Christian kind of 15 to 20. When they turned, kind of left school, they kind of understood that they should be like their youth leader or pastor or whatever, and so they kind of, you know, be honest, be good, that sort of stuff. Uh, and they get to 30... And it's kind of like the reel runs out. They don't really know what to do. It's like Jesus becomes less important or something. And, and what happens is this, flip, this switch gets flicked, and all of a sudden, they just look like Sidney. And they say to me, oh, it's just that Jesus just doesn't appeal to me anymore. And I, I look back at them and I say, no, it's not that. It's that Sydney has been working on you. It has pushed your love in a different direction. Because that is how cities like Sydney work. And when you get to that point as a Christian, you have to wake up and look out and realize what your city is doing and make conscious decisions about the different love that you live for and will live out. Otherwise, the city will take you. Because that is how it works. But the second thing is this. Protest is actively choosing to live out a different love to your sin. And I want to suggest to you that that is particularly true in the public space you have. Your cubicle, your classroom, your, I don't know, coffee machine that you barista from, um, running out of options here, uh, at your desk, you know, at the cafe you work from, whatever that space is. What Jesus wants you to do is take that space that is directed toward luxury and affluence and narcissism and turn it back to a different love. Let me give you two examples. I have two Bens today as examples. I don't know why they're both named Ben. Uh, Here's Ben, number one. This is New York Ben. Ben uh, works on Wall Street, and I don't know if you know about Wall Street. It's not that good. It's not that much better than pre-GFC at the moment. What's happening is young leaders in America no longer go to New York to Wall Street, they go to Silicon Valley, because I think at Silicon Valley they can save the world, but not on Wall Street. And he was really struggling with the hedge fund he worked for, because he felt like he was making good products for his clients and selling them, but he was also shortchanging them a little. And really, he was just making money for his boss, and he was sick of all the greed that he was experiencing. So he decided, like verse 4 says, to come out from her. Here's what he did. Stayed on Wall Street. He started his own hedge fund. Seems like a strange thing for a Christian to do at first, doesn't it? He had one rule everyone's salary is capped across the year, no matter how much money we make. And what this one rule has done is self selected out everyone who is purely run by greed. Because you won't, you can't make as much money as you could in any other hedge fund in the city. And all of a sudden, they invest money to invest money well. To make money. Because you can be a bank and not be, uh, all about affluence and luxury. Banking, investing is not evil but it can be turned toward affluence and luxury. And what he's done is turn it back towards something that can be used to create money for the poor of New York and to create good products for people so that they can earn a further income and deal with life. He took his little spear and he redirected it away. Or how about Sidney Ben, A.M.P., 1860, Benjamin Short, crazy evangelist, preached the gospel like nothing else but also preached about insurance. He was one of AMP's kind of startup kind of people, and what he did was walk around and told men to buy insurance. Do you know why? He said, look after your wife, so she doesn't become a poor widow. Look after your children. He literally said in a talk one day, stop smoking your pipe and drinking beer and buy insurance. He took his little sphere of insurance and turned it toward a love of others, a love of women, a provision for the poor. Insurance does not have to be something that you use to make pure profit, but something to be used for other things as well. What is your little sphere in the city oriented towards Sydney's love? How can you grab it and redirect it? How can your classroom be not about building narcissists but building neighborly people? How can your cubicle be about loving the customer, not just about loving profit? How can your little sub bits of community be about building the kingdom rather than just building the good life for Sydney's side? Because when you grab something and you direct it to a different love, it is an act of prophetic protest against the brokenness in our city. And that is what Jesus is calling you to do. Because when you do that, you proclaim that this love, this society will fall, and this city is going to rise. let me finish with this. Uh, the reality behind a city like Sydney is that its loves are too magnetic. It's too good at working. It already has. The only way you can be shook free from that sort of captivating love is by being captivated by something more beautiful. At the end of our passage, there's a description of a people who are being made ready for a wedding. They belong to the Lamb. And the Lamb in Revelation is the one who enjoyed all luxury, all peace, all comfort, all things who belong to the heavenly city and yet came down to earth, was thrown down like the earthly city, had his last garment taken from him and his last breath taken to bear the judgment for your false loves so that you could belong to his heavenly city forever. And you see, it's only when your heart gets him, it's only when your heart sees his city that you'll be set free from living for this one. To so lift your eyes from this broken city onto the one to come. And protest. In Jesus' name, let's pray. Father, we're thankful for the vision we have in Revelation 18 today of how spiritually societies like Sydney work. And we confess that we've been held by Loves that aren't yours, that displace you, and don't love neighbor. And Father, we ask for freedom tonight in the name of Jesus. And we ask for vision for Monday morning. When we get to that place, that part of your city, and we notice that it is all about luxury, it's all about comfort, it's all about self-absorption, and give us the courage and the vision and the strength and the wisdom to start plotting the other path. To become the prophetic voice that shifts it from the love of luxury and comfort and affluence to the love of neighbor and Jesus.